Life Radio. Stories at the intersection of music and life. Welcome to Music Life Radio. I am your host, Dan Sauter. Music Life Radio is a free podcast available on iTunes and your interwebs at musicliferadio.com and features interviews and stories about and related to music. Today on the program we feature Jerry Beisler. He is the author of The Bandit of Kabul, Counterculture Adventures Along the Hashish Trail and Beyond which is a non-fiction narrative history of the 1970s. We talked to Jerry about the book, which is filled with cutting-edge global commentary on the last days of the legal Afghanistan to Amsterdam hash smuggling route. His memoir tells of his adventures around Asia and the United States. It's a great read. It's filled with pictures. It captures the life and times of his adventure. It covers everything from the early days of hanging out with Jerry Garcia hiding a Tibetan Lama in Nevada from the State Department, his misadventures in Asia, the early days of reggae across the Caribbean, the genesis of the Emerald Triangle pot plantations, the Dalai Lama, beach party with Bob Dylan, and features other counterculture musicians from the late 60s and 70s. Beisler also produced the cutting-edge television show from 1999 to 2006, which won the Best Entertainment Award for the Public Access Television in 2002. Known as Jerry B. in the world of music, he has also produced hundreds of studio and live recordings of jazz, rock, Americana, blues, and reggae. We also feature music that Jerry B. has produced or been involved with. This background track that you're listening to right now is from Jerry Garcia and Howard Wales performing live, featuring Roger Jelly Roll Troy on bass, and was recorded live at Symphony Hall in Boston, Massachusetts. Of course, all of these characters are mentioned in the interview today and are part of the book. So sit back and enjoy another episode of Music Live Radio, this one entitled The Bandit of Kabul, Jerry Beisler. Welcome to the program. We have Jerry B., otherwise known as Jerry Beisler, with us today. He is an author, a poet, a promoter, a producer, an entrepreneur, a compassionate use advocate for medical marijuana, a farmer, a world traveler, a pilot. Did I leave anything out there, Jerry? <laughs> uh, I did scuba dive the wall down uh, in Caribbean. <laughs> Thanks for that kind introduction. Oh, of course, yeah. You know, I was known for 30 years in music as Jerry B., and I was known in for 30 years in writing or more as Jerry Beisler. So on Music Live Radio, we like to jump into people's lives, and I like to start at the beginning. Could you tell us where you were born, you know, where you grew up, and what kind of music you were influenced by in your early childhood? I grew up in a small corner of uh, Gary, Indiana, about 75 miles from downtown Chicago, my first truly great as a young uh, teenager in Gary was to go to a spot called the F&J Lounge and see Buddy Guy, who was uh, probably five, six years older than I was at that time, 
And to me, he uh, was the black Elvis Presley and really led me to the blues. Oh, tremendous, yeah. Now, how old were you uh, when, when you saw him play? I was about 19 when that occurred, okay. maybe just after my freshman year in college. What was your family listening to? Well, actually, um, I grew up on a lot of um, uh, soundtracks for musicals like, um, you know, South Pacific, West Side Story, Showboat, those kinds of things. And it was one thing that I shared in my first days uh, around Jerry Garcia. He had that same, uh, you know, background on show uh, musicals, and he could sing just, you know, almost every song in those things. And uh, I always remember the magical day where he and I went over the hill, as they say, to Stinson Beach, and back and forth, we'd throw out a thing, and I, I like South Pacific, and I'd say, going to wash that man right out of my hair. And, you know, he'd come back with, Bali, I can find you. you know? <laughs> and we kicked around Oklahoma, the wind come rolling down the hill, and Surrey with the fringe on top. And I always thought that as I heard him over his career, sing so many incredible uh, interpretations of other writers' songs that... Uh, he had a true gift for remembering lyrics. Yeah, amazing. Now, what led you out to the Bay Area? Uh, in, I spent the uh, summer of love, as uh, you'd say it, in 1967 in the city of Chicago. I worked in the Wrigley Building. I lived in then what was Old Town, which was the closest thing to the Haight-Ashbury that Chicago had going. And I... Uh, lived as with a roommate with my friend that's in my book, The Bandit of Kabul, Bill Wassman, who went on to be the great travel photographer. And, and we came out to San Francisco in May of 67, so just before the summer of love. We spent that month of May traveling the west coast of California, and, and a lot of San Francisco saw the Jefferson Airplane and Quicksilver and, their, and some of those bands in 67. So we got a taste of it. And I pushed and saved and worked. And by 68, I was able to move out. And uh, I enrolled in San Francisco State. And I actually did two semesters at San Francisco State as well. Now, how did you end up meeting Jerry Garcia? Uh, I met Jerry Garcia through Jelly Roll Troy, who was a bass player from the Midwest that I knew through Lonnie Mack and a guitar player from Indiana and a Booker T of Booker T and the MGs. Oh, of course. Uh, yeah, Booker T went to college at Indiana University where I went to, and he often jammed, it's hard to believe looking back on it, for bar tips. <laughs> Lonnie Mack, who's kind of an underground 60s uh, guitarist, small-town guitarist that everybody always points to as an early influence. And, and Jelly Roll Troy was the bass player in that configuration in Bloomington, Indiana. Jelly came from Cincinnati, and he literally graduated to uh, playing backup with a group called the Kalen Twins. They were literally that, or the Kalen Twins. And they were the opening sort of pretty boy act on the Dick Clark cavalcade of rock and roll, which would have uh, Chuck Berry as the headliner and uh, Johnny Rivers, 
it's the second headliner and down the and so Joey got around. He ended up in San Francisco at the same time, and he started playing at a club called The Matrix with Howard Wales and Jerry Garcia and another revolving cast of musicians. And that's where I met everybody. It was a small club in San Francisco. Everybody was just hanging out together, enjoying the scene. It was a Monday night the blues thing. Steve Miller also played down there. I, I had seen Steve Miller a couple of times in the Midwest as well. He was in a band, oddly enough, called the Royal Velvets, with mm. uh, the now famous Bob Skaggs was in there, and they played out of Madison, Wisconsin. And uh, I was just in the music so deeply and, and with so much love that uh, I was pursuing it from one angle or another for, um, you know, a long time. And in 67, when Bill and I were living in Old Town, Chicago, we were going to see the sh- Chicago with, uh, at a club called Barnaby's with, um, you know, Michael Satira and Lang and the whole whole gang of the, of the original Chicago that, uh, you know, emerged on the scene as sort of the first horns rock and roll band. Yeah. And there was a spot there also called the Electric Theater where uh, I saw um, the Velvet Underground, actually. Oh, what was your first impression of the Velvet Underground? Oh, I loved them. And uh, I saw the Velvet Underground actually earlier um, at St. Bill Austin, lived in uh, the village, and was his gal pal before he married her. Actually, got a job at Max's Kansas City just to give them entree and to see the bands that played there. Yeah. <laughs> and they took me to see uh, the Velvet Underground there when they still had Nico. Yeah. And so that's a ex- real exciting memory. I did see the later version uh, with uh, Sweet Jane and all that kind of stuff, too. Uh, I believe that was at the boarding house in San Francisco. Yeah. What was some of your memories of Jerry Garcia and Howard Wales while they were doing the recording of the Hooter Roll album? Well, you have to take it back in context to everything being set up and recorded live. And the idea of it from the beginning, which was going to be innovative, uh, artistic, uh, more avant-garde, uh, no vocals, uh, that kind of thing. And uh, if you listen to just the very first strong uh, song, Southside Strut, uh, Garcia breaks a lot of new innovative ground on guitar, uh, just working with the wah-wah effects. And, uh, Again, in the context of that time, you know, the wah-wah and a couple other little footpills were about all you had in those days. And I'm sure you realize, you know, the famous bottleneck guitar was originally invented by a guy with a broken bottle top on his finger. I've come a long way.
Now, another thing that I wanted to ask you about that's not music related, but it was happening at the Bay Area, and this was covered in your uh, Bandit of Kabul book uh, early on, and this had to do about how you were involved with hiding a Tibetan Lama from the State Department. Yes, I, again, from the book, there's the two main characters, guys I went to college with and knew from 19 years old and went to Kathmandu and and just uh, shared a life with as friends for all those years. And uh, one of them, called Big Red Ted, uh, was in the Peace Corps. And he was in India, and after he mustered out of his two years, he went up to Nepal uh, and uh, learned a lot about Buddhism and Tibetan Buddhism, and particularly the whole political history of the Dalai Lama having to flee Tibet and everything that, none of that story at that time was back in the West. And one monk had made it to the United States over time and was there, and Ted knew him, and Kissinger, uh, Secretary of State then in the Nixon administration, wanted to, as a big gesture, send him back to the Red Chinese as part of playing what Kissinger and Nixon called the China card for the election in 72. And Ted became aware of it and asked me to uh, help out. And we hung around up in Lake Tahoe for 10 days until the crisis passed. (laughs) And this is also where you met your wife in the book, if I recall. It is, it is. Absolutely. She uh, had a summertime job. She uh, was living with three other girls uh, from uh, university, and they all had jobs uh, in the tourist industry, summertime type of jobs up in Lake Tahoe. It was all a very fortunate thing to get a little um, rush uh, intensive, as they would say now, uh, immersed Buddhist information and uh, just a whole valuable introduction to uh, the philosophy from him. Meet my wife and want to show off for her and so drag her back from whence I came, the Jerry Garcia solo session. (laughs) (laughs) Did she enjoy that scene as well? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Although she had a secret crush on Bob Weir all her life. Yeah. (laughs) I think you mentioned that in the book, too. (laughs) (laughs) So you had some exposure to some of the Asian philosophy and you and Rebecca eventually left the Bay Area and went on this amazing adventure that you cover in your book. You started off in India, ended up in Afghanistan, but you've also were in Bangkok, Burma, Java, Jamaica, Nepal, Amsterdam, Mexico. Uh, I think Hawaii might have even been mentioned in the book. Yeah. What, so what was your inspiration for, for leaving the States? I mean, obviously, you're college-age kids looking for an, an adventure, but what drew you to India specifically? Was that a Big Red Ted? Well, he painted some pretty good pictures, you know, of it all. And um, as you know, uh, the hog farm with Wavy Gravy and Dr. Larry Brilliant and his wife, Dr. Gira, took off for Asia to help refugees and there was just kind of a uh, gestalt for it at the time. And you might remember in the book as well, we were all arrested in a big notorious party that was covered in uh, two issues of Rolling Stone, back-to-back. It was that big at the time. 
Uh, Joe Esterhaus would later write Basic Instinct and direct uh, movies and, and everything, but I think he might be most famous for Basic Instinct. Uh, wrote it for Rolling Stone. Annie Leibovitz took the photos, so that's how big a deal it was. And they were setting, trying to set up the uh, marijuana lawyers, the very famous uh, Terrence Hallinahan, his, his brother, and um, Tony Sarah, you know, who was later immortalized in the film True Believer, portrayed by James Woods. And with that, they set it up around a, a party, and uh, there were 18 uh, narcotics agents from as far away as L.A. that swooped, and their basis for swooping was someone had told them they smelled marijuana. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and as you can see, so it's kind of blown up again. When you were involved in the thing, you looked at it and you said, uh, maybe it's time to leave this country for a while. <laughs> a good time to get out, yeah. Yeah, I mean, if you're, if you're going through that much trouble just to arrest lawyers that you don't like, and 57 people from the party ended up all night in jail, Men squashed into one standing room only cell, and women squashed into the other standing room. <laughs> so uh, anyway, that uh, that was part of it. And uh, then the other thing was that uh, I had the entrepreneurial streak really all my life, and I set up an import company because uh, I realized that... Uh, it was what a lot of people wanted in the handmade and real materials. And, you know, in that era of the counterculture, it was a rebellion against the shag carpet. They wanted an Afghani carpet or a Tibetan carpet or something like that. And I was, uh, uh, you know, just got a customs broker and set up all the paperwork. And here and there, I just was able to buy low, sell high. I was talking about it the other day with a gentleman I met from Sri Lanka where I went to, and I said, oh, I have a very successful business thing as well in Sri Lanka. And he said, what? And I said, Moonstones. Huh. And he just he began to wax sentimental about how great they were and how the world had swooped in during the 29 years of civil war and bought all the good ones up. <laughs> uh. <laughs> but I was there just a year before the war when it was just a incredibly uh, uh, lush and fantastic country uh, that uh, earned its name. Sri Lanka translates actually to serendipity. Was it a coordinated effort when uh, Dr. Larry Brilliant and Wavy Gravy were heading over? Did Was there a group of you that said, oh, let's head over as well? Or did you just kind of end up in the same place? No, things just came along when they came along. You know what I'm saying? There was a charter flight for San Francisco State students they were going to England to study abroad. Okay, yeah. It was very inexpensive, and there were seats available, and the Rolling Stones' Brian Jones Memorial Concert in Hyde Park was available. Ah. So that was a draw, <laughs> and I learned the hard way. The plane went by, and it was such a low red plane, it went by a buffalo and then Gander in Newfoundland, yeah. And by the time we got there after problems, we were too late for the concert. Uh -oh. 
<laughs> How long did that trip take? That must have been... It was about, it was about 16 hours or something yeah, like that. that. That's a long one. <laughs> uh, you must be taken back to the time of no instant banking, no credit cards, no way to make phone calls all around the world. You had to go into a little booth and book something and come back 24 hours later to call between India and America in those days. In the airplane deal, I could just give you a couple examples that will highlight it. One was in Burma, coming down from Pagan to Rangoon, uh, which is a flat delta, not unlike New Orleans, swamps and canals and everything like that. And we, it's a DC-3, and Rebecca and I are sitting in the front row right by the by the captain's cabin, and those and uh, all of a sudden we're swooping to the left and swirling around to the right and diving down a little bit and coming up and people are crying and I look back and it's like all white knuckles and <laughs> we finally swoop around and land. And they come out of the cabin and I say to the first guy coming out, that was quite a landing. And he said, comes to full attention, gives me a salute and says, Captain Ho was responsible for that landing. He thought the passengers would like a little thrill today. <laughs> Any landing is a good landing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And, and, you know, so I, I was armed with that knowledge when I flew from Rangoon to Kathmandu. And you're flying through the Himalayan passes where you're looking out and it looks like the wingtip is five feet from Mount Everest. I tapped on the door and said, you mind if I come up here and look through the front window? And they said, no, come on up. <laughs> 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 so, those, you know, those are reflective of those days, mm -hmm. you know. And if you get into the book, then by the end of the book, you're, you're at... Uh, Peace Sunday, which uh, at the beginning of the 80s, the election of Reagan, that probably highlighted, uh, you know, encapsulated the entire decade before because I ended up, there was a, over 100,000 people in the Rose Bowl for the biggest acts of the, of the time to come out for peace because uh, Reagan was so belligerent and wanted to take on the Soviet Union again and start the nuclear threats and all that stuff. And, you know, the, the biggest of the big came out. That was the Eagles, Crosby, Stills, Nash, Bonnie Raitt, Stevie Wonder, Donovan, the last poets, introductions by Jeff Bridges and Reagan's daughter, Patty Davis, and I can't begin to tell you what a great thing it was, and um, I was in charge of the entering stage left, and so I got to every single group and see what was going on as it was coming on, as they were, and they were going off, and a lot of fond memories, holding Jackson Brown's wife's hand through his entire performance. She was just out of her mind with nervousness. And, you know, it was a big day. Let's jump back to uh, after India, you eventually ended up in Afghanistan. Uh, can you describe what you were doing in Afghanistan? Well, it was doing more of us just the same thing. Again, Afghan carpets. I did a lot of Afghan jewelry. And as I write in the book, I met a genius named Michael Barish. His mother had been on the Ladane Commission, which was a commission set up by 
Pierre Trudeau, when he was prime minister of uh, Canada, was considered sort of the Kennedy of Canada, whether his commission to legalize cannabis or not. Michael's mother ended up on that commission as one of the nine voters, and it voted 5-4 against. But he literally came to Asia on a quest to make hash oil because he had every booklet, every pamphlet, every study that had made, been made on cannabis since 1895 that his mother had obtained in, from the Lutane Commission. And he was sure by an even more of an offshoot at the University of Edmonton on some cannabis drops that had been on plates for 20 years and being studied, this and that. He convinced me that, uh, you know, we could come up with the cure for melanoma. We started to try to make it, and he said about going to the scientific lab equipment places in uh, Islamabad, the capital of Pakistan, which is a very, uh, uh, that's the center of their science. It's kind of the Silicon Valley. And getting all the equipment together. And as I relate in the book, we managed to actually build the thing over a six-month time and get a few drops out of it before uh, it blew up sky high. And uh, that was the end of that. So that <laughs> it destroyed the rented house and you had to deal with the local constabularies and the renters and what a mess, huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Again, fortunately, in those days, uh, unlike America, shall we say, things were not escalated to that big a deal in Asia. Yeah, it was pretty much, oh, well, you just got to pay for the damages and think about getting out of, out of town, more or less, right? Yeah, that kind of thing. <laughs> and I just was a lover of horses. I learned to ride horses when I was five, six years old, a very young guy. I loved him. I dreamed of riding with the, the, the riders of the steps and everything when I was a kid. And uh, I had a chance to have just fantastic horses and ride uh, many, uh, many a mile in Afghanistan. And a lot of that was um, just going back in a time warp. I, I noticed uh, they sell some of these trips nowadays, uh, travel agencies to go to various remote areas by saying, oh, go back and you're going to get a chance to see what life was like in the 18th century. And, you know, pretty much that's the way Afghanistan was at that time. Certainly riding my horse out on the old Silk Road and stuff, it was uh, back in time, no doubt about it. And so in Afghanistan, in the book, you say it's the land of the unruly. I mean, that's kind of what the name literally means. And uh, when you were trying to sell the horse before you left, you ended up getting ambushed. Yes, I was ambushed. Uh, that was what I was trying to buy. Oh, buy the a horse. Stallion, a rare stallion, yes. And uh, it was kind of a life or death situation. And I was uh, uh, fortunate to have an Afghan friend jumped in there and his presence uh more than anything probably saved the day. Of course this is a, a real life or death situation. I had the other one in the book as well, uh where I was saved by my dog Kachuk. Yeah. And Kachuk is an interesting story in his own right. I got him the border of Turkestan up there in northern Afghanistan. He was eight weeks old. 
and uh, he was nine months old when he joined into a fray where they were trying to rob my wife, myself, and another woman, and maybe even kill us, uh, and caught trapped in kind of a remote situation, and uh, promised him that uh, he'd enjoy the rest of his life uh, as best we could. So we brought him back here, he ended up on the ranch up in Chico, and lived to be 13 years old. But the odd twist of the story is, I was uh, just looking through a dog wool magazine at one point and uh, in a barber shop of all places watching my son get a haircut and it had a little ad that said, inherited a Tibetan master, know nothing, anybody could give some info, give a call. Well, these people in Woodstock, New York had had done just that, gotten a Tibetan mastiff inherited from Nepal, I mean imported from Nepal, uh-huh. and uh, knew nothing about it. And then the more we talked, a few phone calls, I was telling them the history of the mastiff in America. They said, fly your wife back, fly you yourself, whatever. Let's have a breeding just for a lot of fun. Yeah. One puppy from that breeding, all these years later, 2008, when the American Kennel Club recognized the Tibetan Mastiff breed at Westminster Kennel Club in Madison Square Garden, the Chook's son won best of breed. <laughs> Another thing to add to your uh, long list of accomplishments. <laughs> yeah. I wrote a little article about it called From the Remote Corner of Asia to or the Emerald Triangle to <laughs> Show Ring Star. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, uh, yeah, so uh, anyway, I'm always indebted to him for the time in Afghanistan when he helped out with some very bad guys. Yeah, well, I'm glad that you made it out of there and have all these other stories to tell. So It was almost a land of suicide or uh, murder, you know. I mean, people were down to such desperate levels of day-to-day living that uh, I mentioned in the book the two uh, guys I met from Minnesota that were walking around the world for a piece. They're walking around the program. They got everything they own, camping, in a little cart pulled by a donkey. Yeah. And they made it as far as the Khyber Pass, some, you know, five, 6,000 miles, and were murdered there for whatever they had. But yeah. the police said the first thing the murderers did, eat the donkey. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Crazy. So that's, that's, that's the level of, of, of desperation. Yeah. 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 You mentioned in the book uh, that you could understand the people's desperation and need to survive. Yeah. Yeah. Well, eventually you left Afghanistan. And I remember in the book, you ended up in Mexico where you spent some time with music promoter Manny Shapiro, who had left the uh, States for tax related reasons. How did you get involved with uh, Manny Shapiro? We went to Puerto Vallarta, and they had a little two-man, on the fan volleyball tournament for, it was kind of a derby, you paid a little, get to get in the thing, and it was every day, and it was in front of one of the biggest hotels, and there were a lot of seats and this and that, and it was just part of the entertainment, it was a, uh, a two-man fan volleyball tournament, and I started going there just to get the exercise was fortunate enough to uh, fall in with a guy that had played at Portland State University. We got better there, and it became more and more fun. And Manny Shapiro, who had run the Hungry Eye and 
put on people like the Kingston Trio and Lenny Bruce and this and that when he first started out uh, down there. And, and for his actually entertainment, he would go down there and, and bet on the two-man volleyball games. He started winning some games and befriended us. And uh, I said to him in a conversation that I, we were going over to Lapa for the, some peace and quiet. That, and uh, he said, you, I got a house over there. You got to look me up, this and that. And, he, and then he made a point of following up and saying, now you must. I got a couple young people, as he described them, coming over. And I want them to ask some, someone their own age to talk to. And that turned out to be Bob Dylan at first, and um, later uh, Dennis Hopper. Yeah, amazing. And you got to see uh, Bob Dylan perform live barefoot on the beach. That was a truly magical thing. Bob Dylan's album, Desire, had come out in the United States, and he came walking down the beach, and uh, someone just came up to us because it was kind of a sunset. There was a little bit of a tradition of meeting at the sunset, you know, and uh, he said, Bob's going to play some. And he went over and he sat in a kind of a picnic bench and said to us all, which was a dozen people, my album just came out in the States and, and I went to, uh, I'm going to play it for you. Yeah, I said, I really like it. And as I say, um, I was particularly moved by Hurricane. And of course, that's Isis was on that one. Sarah, that's just, it was magical. Uh, he never really finished it because Dennis Hopper, ever-present bottle of Jack Daniels in the hand, came down the beach and interrupted the hootenanny with, metal rules, metal rules, Bob, you got to move on. <laughs> he was screaming about heavy metal? Is that what? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But, uh, yeah, that was, uh, it was a really uh, unfortunate little experience to, to be that close to him and get to hear those songs, uh, you know, acoustically like that. As much as I even love uh, the, the recorded versions of them, uh, it was really powerful to hear them uh, with just a guitar. Yeah, well, it's not every day you get to have, like, a living room concert on the beach with uh, Bob Dylan. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, that's impressive. I saw another interesting little uh, story you might enjoy uh, along those lines. I was at uh, Neil Young's ranch. He had a recording studio set up in his barn down there when he recorded a song called Revolution Blues from On the Beach album. And why it's unique, I went there with David Crosby. Crosby, Young had enlisted Crosby to play rhythm guitar on the tune because he, he wanted a uh, kind of a hard-edged, uh, emotionally uh, uh, threatening kind of rhythm guitar lick, uh, somewhat like almost cut my hair or, or, or something like that. And uh, Crosby really delivered, and I got to see uh, really that song uh, was not a lot of overdubbing, not a lot of, it was fairly stripped down and powerful. Uh, I don't know if you remember it, but it begins, uh, you know, we live in the corner of town, got 27 rifles just to keep the population down. It was kind of a uh, commentary on the militia 
posse kind of groups that were rising up around Missouri and Texas and the usual places, you know, where they where they rise up here and there and make noise. So uh, Neil's Young song was, I think, kind of an answer to that. Yeah. Oh, very, very cool. And I was going to talk to you a little bit. You you asked me to uh, talk a little about the Cutting Edge TV show that I produced and created, and my idea was uh, that it would be bands that were on the cutting edge of stardom or, or success. I kind of had a base requirement that they were already drawing, you know, 250, 300 people, and uh, that show uh, hit its peak. In 2002, when it got the award for uh, Beat Out 500 Entrants for the best public broadcasting uh, show for music and entertainment. And um, I was thinking of acts that it produced, and it, it still has a couple of major big combats and touring groups that I, I saw in the paper recently, New Monsoon and Key Leaf Green. And I know that uh, Jolie Holland is really an international star now. And oh, uh, groups, the Phenomenon, still going strong. Did reggae creation, and uh, I can't remember them all right now. But uh, a lot, a lot of fantastic music, and uh, took took eighteen to twenty three people to pull off each show and and get a real high-quality performance that has endured. Are there any archived, like, YouTube clips of any of those performances? There is one. Uh, I'm, very, I'm very proud of this one, actually. Uh, uh, it was put up by the uh, lady who, who edited. Uh, it's called Ultra Gypsies on YouTube under Tai Chi Dancers. And why I say I'm proud of it is 20 Belly Dancers, tribal, including little chimes on their ankles and everything. We had the floor loaded. We had a live band playing the music and 20 girls and pulled off that show. And uh, the YouTube video of it is, is it captures it all. And it also spawned a real star in belly dancing, Rachel Bryce, who uh, is the, the biggest name in belly dancing, actually, Danced in Cairo. Oh, wow. Yeah, and dances on the Queen Elizabeth or some of that cruise ship. That, I, saw her on the, I saw her on the cover of Ballet Dancing Magazine recently. It was one of the odd highlights. I mean, mostly it was reggae, rock and roll, a little bit of jazz, that kind of thing, you know. How did you get involved with this? Is this something you started? Yeah, I pitched it. I pitched it as an idea. That's uh-huh. right. I pitched it as an idea and started putting it together and... Uh, just started finding um, restaurants that would get credit for catering and all the things that it takes to get uh, six cameras and three engineers and lighting and all that that it takes to pull off a quality television show. And uh, it was really enjoyable. You know, we had bands from England that were over here as well in Ireland. Nero played on it. I saw them on the Regency in the Regency in San Francisco a couple months ago. Uh, Kid Galahad had a big hit over there called Pack It Up that played the amphitheater there in Golden Gate Park, and that's where we shot them live. Hmm. Gary Garcia Band had played that amphitheater at one point, along with many, many other bands. Yeah. 
Well, uh, let's jump back to uh, at post Mexico. You had uh, you begun getting interested in reggae music, and you went out to Jamaica to see some real reggae. And you found out that well, that's not where you go. Where, so where do you go to see real reggae? And how did you hook up with the band Culture? This was the best thing that I learned about going to the Caribbean. I was told if you dressed well and you looked like you belonged on a yacht that you could literally go from yacht club to yacht club the entire length of the Caribbean. That each sail was 48 hours. If they knew they weren't going to get stuck with you, they actually wanted you to come along. They needed some new people, this and that. And we, we did just that. We got down to Jamaica, and at least at that time, only reggae cover bands could play in tourist places because it was a hardcore, entrenched booking system. Yeah. I mean, England England had a lot of that in the early days of the Beatles and everything. Uh, you know, they were just old-school booking. And, uh, and, you know, you had to be in unions and this and that. But the next island over is called St. Vincent, and then the next island is called Bequi. And on both of those islands, then, that's where the actual reggae bands were able to play live. And they played, uh, we, were, we got a house on the island of Bequi, and they had a jump up, as they called it, two times a week. And at that time, the band Culture was playing there, and I got to know those guys and uh, talking studios, this and that, and, and next thing you know, we're watching them record and, you know, hanging out, so to speak, and uh, watched them record a song called International Herb. That's what I mentioned in the book, because the, no the, the novel angle to International Herb was that it was a song that, that cannabis was everywhere in the world. It was this international thing. But when the singer actually did some ad living on the on the ride out, he threw two places on the on there that there's no herb on Earth. Yeah, <laughs> Bermuda and Taiwan. <laughs> so anyway, I just always remembered that. So. I took a split this morning off the international. Culture actually got quote-unquote discovered, made a hit called uh, Can You Feel My Love, where they were convinced to put a sort of a variation of the Rolling Stones' satisfaction. That was a big hit for them, but it certainly doesn't even feel like reggae, uh -huh. yeah. you know. 
But I saw them at uh, the Reggae on the River uh, concert up in, uh, you know, I branched into Chico. I, I brought Reggae up there as well right away. Yep. So moving now over to Nepal, how did you uh, get involved in running this trekking business? And can you talk about what trekking is? Well, I went trekking. I didn't run a trekking business. My friend, Big Red Ted, evolved into running a trekking business. Okay. He stayed over there and lived there for 35 years. So he's the one that actually had it. But that allowed me to have uh, wonderful access to trekking, which is trekking is best described as mountaineering, but you go right up to the snow and ice level. And you don't need crampons and winter gear and, you know what I'm saying, survival gear. So, you know, but no snow is the point I'm yeah. leading to in the trekking part. You can go up pretty high in Nepal during certain seasons, and you're way up there and way out there seeing some unusual things. I went all the way up to 17,000 feet to uh, the upper Ancola area called the Ganesh Himal. Ganesh Himal is the third highest mountain in Nepal, 25,000 plus. We went up there, um, you know, with porters and, and the whole fabulous experience. You know, we did have one guy who carried chocolate, another guy who carried some vodka, stuff like that. And, uh, that's what trekking is to me. Now, we did go up uh, right up to Rekina, to Annapurna, to the famous ice caves. The air is clear and beautiful, and, you know, there's colors that you can't believe. When you get up there, out of all the fog and everything, there are other colors of purple and stuff that people haven't seen unless they've got up that high. Mm. Yeah, I'm sure it was amazing. <laughs> yeah, it was. We were taken to a hot spring up there at the very top, and just what you need when you get up on the top of a mountain, that's for sure. Well, the uh, next thing I wanted to get into is kind of outside of the Bandit of Kabul, and this is like when you came back to the States and then you started working in various recording studios with bands, vocalists. You were obviously doing a lot of promotion and producing. Can you talk a little bit about that and what your role was and what some of the studios that you worked at were? Yeah, well, the producing thing was really more in the 70s. The promoting thing was after the Chico, but the producing thing that it led to was in the 80s, where I, I did a lot of bands, a lot of work for hire. I was known as the king of the option. In those days, the record companies would give you ten, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars to sign a band. They'd have oh ninety days to think about whether they wanted to give them another hundred thousand to make the entire album. So they'd get the fifteen or twenty thousand out of a couple songs, and they'd either take you on or they wouldn't. And I did at least 20 deals like that with various bands and configurations and stuff back and forth to LA across the 80s. That's primarily what I did. I did some commercials as well. And uh, I still was promoting up in Chico through the mid-80s. A real highlight up in Chico at that point was Los Lobos. And the reason I say that was it was their very first Starring tour where they had actually made it after their climb, like any other band's climb. And, and one of the things that I had to do and get them while they were less expensive, too, 
So Bill Graham, famous Bill Graham, the promoter, had a 150-mile radius contract where you couldn't perform for two weeks within San Francisco on one of his contracts. So I, Chico, fortunately, was out of that 150-mile radius, so I could pick up groups coming from University of Oregon and Eugene or vice versa going up towards Portland and uh, Los Lobos. From when I signed them to when they showed up, they were on the cover of Rolling Stone. Yeah, that's great, yeah. <laughs> it really was, and, and to spend time with those wonderful guys, I got to see, you know, you know, what it was like to see some guys that had realized that their hard work had just paid off, and they were starting on their first tour where they were going to come home with six figures. Now, when you were doing the work for the King of the Options, were you freelance? There was a couple of um, of uh, production companies set up. One of them was called Lee Shore that I worked for. There was, um, but I was pretty much freelance. Yeah, I uh, uh, jumping studios, record plant, Studio D, Automat, different for Devonshire down in San Francisco. Ended up with a lot of work for higher stuff, and it ended up in movies at one point. Here was RCA building and all that music. And across the street, in a little shed, were these guys from Australia who bought little tales of songs, solos of songs, songs that didn't make it. Yeah. And they all went down to Australian B-movie biker films that you've never <laughs> seen. <laughs> oh, that's funny. <laughs> So if it didn't if it didn't fly from the big boys, you could go down and <laughs> pawn it off on those guys, and they were glad to get it. You might have a chance of being an Australian biker movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and you know the thing that I look back on it that is so fantastic is just got to work with you know brilliant studio musicians of that time and that era again before Pro Tools. And in all this, you know, digital age, everything was pretty much four or five guys and gals that were trying to find that magic three, four minutes. You know, I can just only imagine what it you know, must have been like to, to watch the Beatles put something like Sgt. Pepper's album together or something like that. Just uh, ideas and, and interaction and collaboration. And it was, you know, wonderful time. Yeah, no, that's... Very, it sounds very interesting. Yeah, I ended up with enough money to uh, sell my ranch and uh, open from scratch a bar and restaurant in Hawaii and Kauai and stay with a little music over there as well. I um, did some production, the Rivera Band over there, uh, a Bentley Callaway. I had some experience. I, I ended up in the studio over in Hawaii with all the guys who ended up in Taj Mahal's Phantom Band. Oh, okay. They were kind of my studio unit when I was over there. Mm. So I, I kept it alive as best I could. I mean, it's a fairly small island. I had worked also on um, in George Benson's studio in uh, Maui. A few songs there, a fabulous, fabulous state-of-the-art studio in Lahaina, Maui. It was a great experience. Um, that band was called uh, Dawson Tate. And um, the level of innovation in those days, 
uh, they had a girl and the two guys and a manager. He had some money and this and that. So I took a tourist helicopter, you know, flew people up and down the coast and showed them everything. Hired the guy to fly around with a couple video cameras. Got everybody we knew into downtown Lahaina to dance around and the band lip synced and the helicopter swooped and took shots. Now, this is a big deal for, you know, I'm talking about 1981 here or something like that, 82. You think you're really on to something and hitting it off? The girl quit the next day. (laughs) (laughs) Too much, huh? (laughs) There's always those kinds of things that come into play that you have no idea where or, you know, what's behind them. Yeah. (laughs) You know? Uh. Now, the uh, bar restaurant, was that International Cafe? It was, the International Cafe, and it was a very low-key thing, uh, vegetarian fish, being a tourist destination with a liquor license, easy money. Yeah, and you had a lot of uh, interesting people come through and and visit, if I recall. Yeah, of course. Um, You know, that was the reason that I actually built the place, was I wanted to go to the islands, but as an old friend of the islands, I knew there was very little, shall we say, brain brain food there, that people talked about surfing and fishing and the weather and maybe a little NFL football or something, but... uh, it wasn't what I was used to with a bunch of uh, international kicking their politics around and everything, and that was why I decided to go that route, mm. and um, and it paid off. It was it was just a lot of fun. I was blown away by Hurricane Aniki. Uh-huh. That's how it ended. So I was blown away by Hurricane Aniki, and um, and that uh, also blew away my marriage, and so things. You know, dramatically changed from there. Oh, okay. Uh, then later on in Hawaii, uh, in the late nineties, I had uh, um, extended myself too far, foolishly, and surfing fell off the surfboard. Too old, too big of waves, and uh, had a serious accident, and have forced me to move back to the Bay Area and get back into music. And that was right when Prop 215 was coming along, and it allowed me to jump back in with the Cold Tape Band and uh, bring the Outlaw Life song to life. That was a minor hit and a little anthem for that campaign to legalize marijuana in medical sense. Can you talk about a little bit more about your accident and what, what exactly happened? Oh, uh, well, I hit the water too hard, and I um, tore my um, retinas. And you had to have this surgically reattached, is that correct? Yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. That's yeah, a pretty, had have... You had a kind of a string of bad luck with the with the hurricane, and then the, <laughs> the accident, and then move. So you, you moved back mainly because of the, the medical attention that you needed? Yes. Well, no, actually, you know, this was the odd thing. I was still doing music, and... Um, I was brought back over here to work on a single in a studio in Emeryville with the precursors of what it, what became the Crowning Crows. Ah. And 
all of a sudden, uh, the lights went out for me, and uh, for nine days, I was actually blind, totally blind. So I was very fortunate to uh, come back from that to a California driver's license. So I'm, yeah. I, you know, it's a long, it was a long way back, but it didn't allow me to go back to Hawaii. I was trapped uh, in a rock and a hard place over here, that's for sure. Ah, uh, okay, I see. Then after I got into that, I did a couple of songs in the last days of Analog and everything uh, with, a, with a lady singer named Boutica. Uh, although it was requested, I do uh, one Dylan song and one Stone song with her and, and three of her own. And then I ended up doing some Christmas songs and a lot of things that allowed me to get back in the studio again for a couple of years. Getting back to the uh, Prop 215 and the Compassionate Use, yeah. you ended up uh, recording It's an Outlaw Life, which was originally one of your poems. Right. Yeah. And uh, you teamed up with the Cole Tate Band, and then the recording was called Mary Jane Blues. And then that band went on to tour. Did you have any kind of uh, relationship with the band when they were on the road? Well, actually, I mentioned earlier in the conversation that the name of the band in Hawaii was the Dawson Tate Band. Yeah. And that was, the other half of that was Cole Tate. Okay. So Cole Tate had had a long, and I have had a long, enduring um, friendship and many other songs and many, many, many things. And I went with Cole. Cole did a tour um, supporting that record and then the 215 Clause all around Southern California. Uh, yeah. And then Cole went from there. He uh went to Europe and did uh, two tours in Europe. From the Emerald Triangle to the Golden Gate It's a six-hour drive and I'm running late I'm burning borrowed time Every second counts I keep telling myself Boy, better slow down and I'll be feeling so much better when I see those city lights the Sheriff pulls me over, he'll be reading me my rights Outlaw life It's an outlaw life Outlaw life Any Chinese medicine for centuries Some folks claim that it's helping them to see other musicians also for the, in the fight for compassionate use. Can you talk about some of the other people you work with? 
Well, it was one of my jobs as entree back into everything. So my eye thing was a famous uh, activist crusader. He ran for governor and received 55,000 votes at one point. Dennis Perone opened what was the very first uh, cannabis medical uh, club uh, shortly after Prop 215. And fortunately, he hired me to um, the music for it. Now, it was on 8th Street in Market. 8th Market. It was five stories. The first story had an intake. The second story had uh, T-shirts and things like that, uh, bongs and papers. And the third story had a little um, health food restaurant, juice bar. The fourth story had um, a disco, literally left over from a previous tenant. And the fifth story uh, had rooms and places where people could live and an office and things like that. So uh, uh, I was able to bring in groups like the ITELs played there, Quicksilver Messenger Service, The Lost Tribe, Cold Tate Band played on the actual one-year anniversary of the passing of Proposition 215 there. So it was quite a club for a while, um, uh, a la European-style feel to it all, and also we did some cabaret and, and, you know, jazz and a little alternative world beat type of things and stuff, so I think it lasted for two years altogether. Okay. Well, now, in recent years, I, I know you've been focusing on your books, after, especially after the uh, Cutting Edge television show. Uh, the Bandit of Kabul, of course, is available on, in paperback and ebook, and uh, you're going to be coming out with a hardback version of this. And you've also got some other books in a series related to this, correct? And those are in the works? Yeah, well, on that original deal, I agreed to write one book Got one counterculture history of the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s. So I am about three-quarters of the way through the 60s right now. Uh, and the book, The Band of Kabul, spawned a big um, um, writing career for me, almost like a second career, and then a, a lot of requests for magazine articles and, you know, think political slants and and. Since Prop 215, um, cannabis has been a big issue worldwide, and um, so I've been getting requests for, you know, writing on all sorts of angles to politics and the election and the fast-moving events of, of current times. I'm going to be bringing out, besides... Uh, 60s book. I I have a compilation now of uh, with color photos and everything about 140 pages of uh, what I'm calling the Berkeley years. It started in Berkeley of all those magazine articles and and poems that I've written in those years. So uh, I'm very proud that it's quite a collection now. Oh, that's great. One of the things I like to ask everybody is, uh, what does music mean to you? Well, music would have to be the muse of my life, I would say, just because I was so drawn to it in all of its many, many, many forms. I mean, I spent time in Colombia, and I can tell you that the, the, the great one of the great moments there was every Sunday for 40 years in a plaza, 
two guitarists had played for each other, and this was their 40th anniversary. I can't remember their name. I can only remember the setting, how magical it was. Just uh, the venues, the music, the and, and just truly drawn to all its forms. I mean, I am equally as happy watching a jazz band, a Balkan band, an alternative rock band. I go to a minimum of one opera a year. Uh, I always go see opera on New Year's Eve. So, I, you know, it's just music in all its forms. And I um, worked with a group, just for example, called Buddha Ray, a brilliant, brilliant 12-string guitarist guy. Just, just unique tunings, uh, uh, just a fantastic guy and a fantastic band who based their belief on known as medicine music for about three centuries, which was the rulers of that era realized that the small villages needed a certain respite from their labors, and they literally paid almost like a public works thing for bands, musicians, to go out and entertain them here and there. And, and that was the basis of thought of the Buddha Ray uh, experience. Again, always uplifted by music and just drawn to see it from Booker T and Lonnie Mack down with Jelly Roll uh, to, you know, down in Indiana for 25 bucks a, a night. Those guys were playing for it to, uh, to the Matrix, the Fillmore. I was very, very fortunate uh, to fall into in 68-69 through uh, a couple of connections. I got to see any show backstage, the whole deal, at the Fillmore and the Avalon Ballroom. Everybody through that period, I was, um, you know, walked walk through the door and did whatever I want in both those places. So I saw Graham Parsons. I saw the Led Zeppelin when they were the third band, then the second band, then the first band. <laughs> you know, they were magical experience. Well, have we covered everything that you wanted to get out of this interview, Jerry? Is it, am I missing anything? I really should mention the great musical charity, the Rex Foundation, that uh, Jerry Garcia's wife, Mountain Girl, runs with a lot of energy and uh, oversight on making sure the money gets to the high schools and things like that. So that might be a little uh, bouquet to throw out there when talking about modern, you know, the current day of music. And I would also say... Great hot young band is Buckster Hooten. Buckster Hooten, yep. Yeah, they are really, really good. And uh, I just saw them the other night at the makeout room. Fantastic all rockers. Multi talent. I kind of consider them to be almost like the band of uh, our time. Uh, the drummer can play the piano as well. The brilliant, brilliant lead guitarist can also uh, play every play the violin very well play uh, keyboards very well, that kind of thing. When uh, Booker T, who we, we mentioned, I mentioned earlier, was so, uh, to me, so profound to see in action when we were in college. He's famous in the Indiana University Music School for learning how to play a violin by picking it up in 20 minutes. Yeah, wow. <laughs> fooling around with it. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's a so, prodigy. <laughs> and that's, 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 uh, the guys in Buckshire Hooten are, are pretty darn close to that in many ways I say they're almost like the band alright yeah that's about everything I might want to say right now sounds good 
All right. Well, thanks again, Jerry, for being on the program. Thank you very much for having me. And it's always good to talk about music and the world and politics. And let's hope for a bigger, brighter day for everybody. I can get on board with that. <laughs> All right. Now, right, leave it with uh, peace. All right. Thank you. Thanks again to Jerry B. for being on the program. Make sure to check out his ebook, which is available now from Amazon. The hardcover edition, which is being published by Train Day, available at trainday.com directly. Uh, that should be available on July 1st. And you can get a softcover version of the book from Regent Press, and their website's regentpress.net. So check it out. It is a, definitely a very good book. And the uh, hardcover, of course, is going to have extra artwork and pictures, which are very neat. We're going to leave you with the rest of the track that we started to hear earlier on the program. This is Jerry Garcia and Howard Wales, Southside Strut. Thanks again for checking out Music Live Radio. I'm your host, Dan Sauter, and we'll catch you next time.